0: 7, as we continue going through the book of Mark, Mark chapter 7, and today we're going to be in verses 9 through 13, and uh, this is this is this this has been a, a difficult passage to study and to preach because there's two very significant topics that are being talked about in these four verses, um, namely honoring our parents, ironically, my parents are in, <laughs> in town today, was not planned that way. But I'm going to be held accountable for a lot of things, which is good. Um, But honoring our parents, number one. And the idea of tradition versus God's word, number two. And these are very big topics. And and, and we looked a little bit last week at the tradition versus God's word kind of thing. Uh, But but it's difficult because both of these topics can be preached on by themselves. But here we're we're trying to deal with both of these very grand topics in the same sermon in four verses. And so let's read... um, I tell you what, let's pray for for the Holy Spirit to give us illumination, and then we'll, we'll read. Holy Spirit, we praise you. We thank you that you are our comforter, that you are the one that gives us wisdom, that you're the one who calls to mind the things of Scripture, and you're the one who opens Scripture up to us, Lord. So give us grace. We're praying for that now. We pray that you would open up the Scriptures to us. Help us to see Christ. Help us to see the truth of the Scriptures. Give us grace, O Lord, not to be hard-hearted. Give us grace not to have ears that are clogged. Uh, But, Lord, give give us eyes to see today. Give us eyes to see and behold the beauty of Christ and the things of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so verses 9 through 13. He was also saying to them, You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, If a man says to his father or his mother, Whatever I have that would help you is Corban, that is to say, given to God. You no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down. And you do many things such as that. And so just to kind of catch us up to speed, you remember um, last week I mentioned that this is really a three-part dialogue that's going on. It's going to take three different sermons. But we saw last week that the the big problem is is that the Pharisees and scribes, they come from Jerusalem. They're an official delegation. They come and they start accusing Christ's disciples of what? Of not washing their hands. Of having them. They're impure. They're about to eat, but before they eat, you're supposed to wash your hands according to tradition. Remember we looked at not according to God's word, according to tradition, you're supposed to wash your hands. They're not doing that. And so they're accusing Christ by his disciples, by virtue of his disciples not washing, they're accusing them all of being unclean. And so Christ is flipping it and saying, wait a minute, who who has taught that? Where are you getting that? We saw that last week. Today we're seeing, um, it's it's the same line of argument, but we're going to see Christ use this argument regarding parents and regarding what's going on with this fifth commandment. In the ten commandments, you have have the first table, which is the the first four commandments is the table that deals with my, my dealings with God, my interactions with God. Commandments five through ten in the table regard my dealings with man my duties towards man and the very first commandment that's given to us in the ten commandments as far as that second table goes and the fifth commandment is this idea of honoring our mother and our father and so Christ looks at this and he says okay you look what you guys have done with this law and so that's where we're going with this so look what he says though here in verse nine okay he says he was also saying to them you are experts you are experts. And if you pause there, here's the thing on being an expert. Is it wrong to be an expert? Not necessarily. In fact, it's a good thing usually, right? If you're if you're working at your job, it's a good thing to be an expert in your job. You want to learn about it. You want to know about it. You want to be studied up. You want to know what to do, what not to do. It's good to be an expert at work. It's good to be an expert at being a parent. It's good to be an expert at a lot of different things. It's good to be an expert, of course, especially in the scriptures, But look what he says here. He doesn't say you are experts in the scriptures. You are experts in the things of God. He says you are experts in or at setting aside the commandment of God. That's what you're an expert at. Think about about what that's saying. He's, he's, this is a, of course, this is a condemnation of them. This is a serious rebuke. You guys are not experts in things you need to be experts in. You are experts at setting aside the things you should be experts at. They are, they are like what? They are like Satan. Because if you go back to the Garden of Eden, what do you have in chapter three? You have Adam and Eve, they're just created, they're fresh from being created, and then the serpent comes in and the serpent starts beguiling Eve. And what does he do? What does he say to beguile Eve? He says, did God really say? He starts twisting the word of God. What does Satan do when Christ is in the wilderness? What does he do? He goes to Christ and he tempts Christ by using what? By using the scriptures. By setting So what he's doing, the the serpent, the, the devil, Satan, he's doing what these guys are doing. That's why in John, whenever you have Christ accusing them of doing the deeds of your father, the devil. That's what he says to them. Why? Because they do these things. They're experts at twisting scriptures, setting aside the scriptures so that why, and this is what he says, in order to keep your tradition. And we saw that last week a little bit. Because that's when God, Christ comes in and he condemns them from Isaiah 29. And he says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They're far away. They say all day long, oh, I, I'm a Christian. I love God. I love, they wouldn't say I'm a Christian. I love God though. I'm, I'm a child of Abraham. I'm, I'm this and I'm that. I keep the law. But their heart is far from me. It's easy to say it with your mouth. Oh, I love God. I'm a Christian, right? But your heart, your heart that doesn't mean your heart's there. Here, here we have this similar line of argument, but what he's saying is this. Think about, so last week we talked about different traditions. What are some ways that people, they come in with their own tradition, and they say, no, 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 we're going to set aside the things of God for the sake of our own tradition. And we talked about certain topics, some of them hot-button topics, like one of them, homosexuality, where you're saying how, how studious, how, how wise people are. And I'm telling you this from experience how wise people are when it comes to setting aside what God has taught about homosexuality so that they can bring in their own traditions there's a there's a documentary coming out um I don't know it might even be I don't know it's called project 1946 or something like that has anyone heard of this Okay, I see a lot of heads, right? That's, what's, what's going on with 1946? Well, this is the line of argument. I've, and I've heard it for for about two years. And so, um, you know, you can, you, and, and at one point, you know, you look it up and you're like, oh, this is, this is total malarkey. It's totally, it's totally made up. But the idea is, in, in 1 Corinthians 6, there's, uh, Paul says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. They saying you used to be this way, you're no longer that way, you've been converted. But he's clearly talking, right, homosexuals. So the 1946 project comes in and, and supposedly, and, and you can look it up, it's, it's, it's very clearly fabricated. But what they do is they say, well, this portion was not there before 1946. Which is absolutely insane because you have Greek manuscripts that you can go back to. You have the King James Version Bible that you can go back to that was written before 1946. And the word that what happens is is they start looking at it and they're like, well, wait a minute, that word for homosexuality is not in there, but it is in there. The word that Paul uses is is very explicit. It is talking about um, the 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 the. The the male who is more effeminate than the other male, right? We all we all get that, that understanding. So that's what's going on. But I'm saying this as an example of, of how easy it is and how insidious it is in our culture to have these traditions that are elevated to a place where now all of a sudden they're more authoritative than the Bible itself. One thing we didn't mention last week that I thought of later as far as a good example would be something like women ministers. What does the Bible say? First Timothy two. That, God, uh, Paul says, "I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man." And people are like, "What is this? Don't you know? You, we've all heard it. Don't you know we live in 2022 United States of America? What's going on in our culture when it comes to these kinds of topics? Because who, who becomes who becomes the bad guys? We do, right? Because you're saying, "Well, I'm not. I'm just trying to stick to what the Bible says." You guys are making up all these traditions, like well, women can be ministers, homosexuality is okay. Where do you get that from God's word? You don't. So where are they getting it? They make it up. It's traditions of men. That's all it is. And so you have these examples. Um, and there's other, there's other things too. And we're going to come back to this. But here, here's, here's the point, right? When you're looking at this, isn't it interesting? In our culture, we have, we have experts when it comes to twisting scripture. And in Christ's day, there were experts when it comes to twisting scripture another one is, is, is regarding hell how many, how many times you hear well I don't believe in hell I don't believe in hell well okay let's look at scripture who spoke more about hell than anybody else in the entire Bible Jesus Christ right so again it's this pharisaical mindset where you're saying okay well I believe this but God's word teaches this and who's right my tradition or God's word That's the situation Christ and his disciples are in. So Christ is now looking at it and he's saying, okay, I'll give you an example of how you guys are twisting scripture. And that's where he gets into this verse 10. He says, for Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, whatever I have that would help you is Corban, that is to say given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition. Which you have handed down. Now, this, this, this type of argument is, is called an enthymeme argument. And it's, Aristotle said that this is the strongest kind of argument that is, is out there. It's, there's no stronger argument than the argument that Christ is making. And Christ does not make this argument because Aristotle said it's the strongest argument. Christ probably never even worried about Aristotle and what he thought Christ is the God-man. But Christ, because all truth is God's truth, Christ recognizing, hey, there are strong ways to present arguments. He's using this kind of argument. And it goes like this. Okay, the first claim is this. God's word commands persons to care for parents. Is that clear or what? Right? So where do you have this? Look what he said. Um, Now, Christ, look at the examples Christ uses, in other words. Look at verse 10. He says, For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother. And he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. Christ here is quoting from Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother. And he also quotes here from Exodus 21. That's the second part where it says, he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. Now, again, as I mentioned, this is the bedrock of all the other commandments that are to follow in the Ten Commandments. This is, when it comes to our duty to man, the very primary duty or commandment that comes from, from, from all of the Ten Commandments is right here. There's no, is the foundation of all the, the duties to man is, is in this one commandment. That's why it's the first one. And, and you see this, um, there's other places in Scripture. Let me give you Leviticus 19.3. It says, you shall fear every man his mother and his father. Ephesians 6 in the New Testament. It says, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. This quoting from Exodus. I want you to turn to Deuteronomy with me. De- turn to Deuteronomy 21, and I want you to ask yourself, ask yourself this. Okay, I'm going to read something that is absolutely uh, antithetical or shocking, I guess, would be a word for our culture today. But look at how serious this commandment is. This is how serious this is, this idea of honoring your father and mother. Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21. If any man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father or his mother, and when they chastise him, he will not even listen to them, then his father and mother shall seize him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gateway of his hometown. They shall say to the elders of his city, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard that all the men of a city shall stone him to death. So you shall remove the evil from your midst, and all Israel will hear of it in fear. Do you realize? Do you see why they do that? Why is this such an important commandment? Because if you're not honoring your father and mother in the home, you're not going to honor anybody outside of the home. If there's anarchy in the home, what's it going to look like when everyone's outside of the home? Anarchy. That's why you have this, this last part right here where it says, you shall remove the evil from your midst. It's a purging effect. And all Israel will hear of it in fear. You hear of this happening, and, and what do you do? Man, I better take this commandment seriously. When I hear this other guy stoned, and I'm not, I'm not advocating here for that necessarily, as far as, you know, what I'm saying is that this demonstrates that you have a, a very significant command in the eyes of God. This is significant stuff. In Romans chapter 1, if you turn to Romans, there's, there's, uh, there's these passages in Scripture. Romans chapter 1 has one and 2 Timothy has one where they're talking about cultures that have been given over to their sin. And they give this list, you know. So in, in Romans chapter 1 verse 30. For instance, it says um, these people who are unbelievers, they did not see fit to acknowledge God. God gave them over to a depraved mind. And then in this list, it says in 29, it says being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. The same thing, you get a very similar list in 2 Timothy. These, these are cultures that have been given over to their evil. One of the hallmarks of whether or not a culture has been given over is whether or not they honor their parents. It's, it's, it's huge. And so Christ is saying this, and the scriptures say this, what is the penalty for not honoring your parents in the scriptures? You're to be put to death. You know, when it comes, when it, when it, when it says things like, um, this is, this, this is the first, in in fact, Paul says it in, in Ephesians chapter six, he says this, he says, he says, this is the first commandment with a promise. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. What's that talking about? If you obey and honor your parents, you're not going to be put to death. What's the flip side of that though? What happens if you disobey your parents? What happens if you dishonor your parents, right? Judgment, destruction, death. So what Christ is doing here, Christ flips it and he says, okay, guys, listen, what you guys are doing, because in this scenario, when Christ is interacting with the scribes and Pharisees, who is the one who is dishonoring their parents? The Pharisees and scribes. So that's why the first argument with this 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 strong argument that I was saying. So number one, God's word commands persons to care for parents. Number two, scribes and Pharisees forbid persons who invoke Corbin to care for their parents. What's the idea of Corbin? What's that about? Look at look at Mark chapter seven. And you'll see verse 11, he's, this idea of Corban. If a man says to his father or his mother, whatever I have that would help you is Corban. The idea there is that that's a word that they would use. Um, it's, it's mentioned in the Mishnah. That's the oral tradition. It's not in scripture. But the idea here is, is when I say Corban, if I have some property or if I have, if I have some stuff and I, and I mention the word Corban over that, that property, that property goes from being common to holy. It goes from being used for secular purposes to being used now just for the things of God. And so what they would do is, is this is this is, these are middle-aged children, these are children that are that are grown, they have aged parents. Why is this important? Well, and these days they don't have retirement homes, they don't have retirement packages, you know, they don't have they don't have severance pay, they don't have social aid, they don't have any of this stuff. And so if you have if you have parents when they get older, who's gonna take care of the parents? You are. Right? That's the idea. But if I have some property or if I have some money or if I have something that I'm like, you know what, I, I want to kind of keep it for myself, I can just look at that and say, hey, that's Corbin. And if I say that's Corbin, that means it's off-use or off-limits for anybody besides myself. That's the kind of the catch there is I can still use it. But you can't. My parents can't. And so what's going on is that Christ is pointing out the fact that these guys, look what he says. He says, if you if, if uh, you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, whatever I have that would help you is Corbin. Look at verse 12. You no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother. Notice it. Notice he, he doesn't say you, you discourage him from using it. He says, you don't even let them use it. They're not allowed to use it. It's off limits. Once you say Corbin. It is a binding vow that, that, that lasts forever. You cannot take that back. And Christ is saying, this is what you guys have done. This is your law. That is your tradition. And going back to the whole mindset of, well, who is the one that's calling down destruction on their own heads? The Pharisees and the scribes are. And as I mentioned last week, in AD 70, when the, when the Roman... If, the, if you go back in time and you look at the Old Testament... When the, when the Israelites, when Israel goes into exile, how are they brought into exile? God raises up Assyria. He comes in and he destroys the northern kingdom. He destroys the people there. And he takes those who are alive into exile. And then later on, he raises up Bab, uh, Babylon. Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, they go in there. And what do they do? They sack the, the southern part, Judah. They sack the southern part of, of Jerusalem, of, uh, of Judah. And they take everybody away. God uses foreign powers to judge his people. He's always done that. What's going to happen in seventy A.D. is God is going to raise up the Roman army, and the Roman army is going to go into Israel, and they are going to sack and raise to the ground the entire city of Jerusalem. They're going to raise to the ground the Pharisees, the scribes, everybody who's part of this system. They're going to, the temple's going to be destroyed, the genealogy's destroyed, all of it's destroyed. There's blood on the streets, as I mentioned last week in Josephus. He talks about how there has never, and to this day, historians will tell you, there has never in the history of humanity, as far as we know, been a 7 to 10 day period of time when more people were slaughtered and decimated than in the fall of Jerusalem in in AD 70. And this is what Christ is saying, right? Christ is warning them, you guys, this is what happens. You're going to be destroyed. You dishonor mothers and fathers. There's destruction. There's judgment coming. It's that serious. And then 12 and 13, you have the other two arguments. So scribes and Pharisees forbid persons to honor persons because of Corbin. The next argument is thus they reject God's word by their tradition. Right. That's that's clear. You no longer permit him to do anything for his father or, or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you've handed down. That's the problem. The problem is, OK, the, one of the problems is that, yeah, you have caused people to dishonor their parents. But the, what's the root of this problem? The root of this problem is that you have taken God's word and invalidated God's word. That's the problem. It's what you've done with the word of God. If you look at God's word and you're studying God's word for okay, how should I how should I treat my parents? How should I engage in society? How should I interact? And I'm studying, I'm an expert not at invalidating God's word, I'm an expert in God's word. And I'm looking at this, what's going to happen is that I'm not going to reject God's word whenever a tradition comes along and says, hey, this is what you need to do. I can look at that tradition and say, no, that's not what I'm called to do because that invalidates God's word, that goes against God's word. You have this in the days of the Reformation. What Luther, in God's grace, was was so effective in was he was looking at the traditions that that were raised up in the Roman Catholic Church and he's looking at God's word and he's saying they don't, they don't match. So what do you do? That's the question. That's the question we ourselves have to answer. That is the question we have on the table. Every single time somebody comes, and you've seen these, you've seen these reports or these, 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 uh, these questionnaires that Ligonier, these others, they'll send out to these so-called Christians. You know, is Christ the only way to God? No, he's not the only way to God. Of course not. There's many roads to God right and you hear that okay and you're asking yourself well that's a tradition that's not god's word that's tradition hell doesn't exist that's tradition right homosexuality that's these are traditions that's what you have to look at you know christ isn't god these are all these are all man made traditions that's what luther picks up on how am I to be right with God? Well, you got to join the Roman Catholic Church. You have, to, you, have to, you have to do all these things. You have to confess your sins. You have to partake in the sacraments. And Luther's saying, well, wait a minute. I'm reading over here. It's by faith alone. So which one is it? And that's what Luther's doing. And you notice how they attack Luther. They said, Luther, you're the... I mean, you, we have all these church fathers. We have all this tradition. We have all these people that that, that before you have come. And they've, they've said the opposite of what you're saying. And what's Luther do? Luther goes back to scripture. And they try to get him in a corner. Remember that? You probably heard this debate. You know, Luther's debating this guy. The guy is an expert in the church fathers. Luther's an expert in God's word. And they're, 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 they keep they keep snagging they're saying okay there's a hang-up somewhere what's the hang-up you think that tradition is authoritative and i think god's word's authoritative that's what it comes down to and so and i man is this is so relevant this is so relevant i'm telling you and 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 the point is is and and some of these are more obvious right as far as as far as hell homosexuality things like that that's that stuff's obvious you don't even have christians trying to trying to justify abortion I mean, I can't tell you how many Scripture... And I know a lot of you in the same boat. How many, time, how many places in Scripture people try to twist the Scriptures to try to justify slaughtering babies? It's amazing, right? But what are they doing? They're experts at it. Oh, they're experts. They're studied when it comes to how they can twist the Scriptures to validate what they want it to say. When a plain reading of the scriptures, is... I'm sorry, man, it's not there, right? Every aspect... Not every, but a lot of aspects in our own lives, and our culture, when you're at work, because of the age that we live in, the culture we live in, when 90% of people that say they're Christian, if they were to die right now, they would go straight to hell. They would. Because they're not born again. It's clear. Because just like these Pharisees. Why? Because the scriptures aren't that important to them. What's important? Tradition. That's what's important. Whatever the culture says, that's what's important. That's a sign of your being not being born again. That's a sign of a uh, Mark, that you haven't, you haven't experienced the grace of Christ in your life. And so in our own lives, whenever we go out and we're in, interacting with people, we have to realize, be, be looking for ways. You know what this is called? R.C. Sproul calls this loophole legalism. That's exactly what it is. You know why? Because you flip, they flip it. Now who becomes the bad guys, as I mentioned, right? You're telling me that you actually believe in hell? Don't you know how backwards that is? Don't you know how radical that is? Don't you know how evil that is, right? And you're thinking, well, I'm just going by what God's Word says. Just like the Pharisees and scribes, they go to Christ and they go to His disciples. Don't you know how backward you are? Don't you know how how radical what you're saying is how absurd what you're saying is don't you know we've always thought this way and and now you come in and try to ruin things just by bringing in god's word it's loophole legalism you look for loopholes in the scriptures to justify something that you want to be true that's not true and then you make everyone else you make it apply to everyone else as well loophole legalism but here's here's what you have though um the Pharisees and the scribes, what are they doing? They're perpetuating a tradition, a false doctrine that encourages their followers to do evil. That's the biggest, that's the significant problem here. When we're perpetuating these doctrines and we're saying, hey, I don't believe that, that Christ is God. Or I don't believe that, all, that, that, that Christ is the only way to God. You might be thinking you're doing the nice thing, but really you're damaging people. You're destroying people. Just like these Pharisees, right? Does that make sense? So you're saying, because these false... If you have a false notion of what it takes to be right with God, if, if you have a false understanding or a false idea of that, of what it takes, you can't be right with God. That's why the true gospel has to go out. That's why Luther, when he takes a stand, that's why it's so encouraging and it's so, it's so necessary. Because if, if Luther and these others, there's so many others besides Luther that we don't give credit for. But if they don't take a stand, why is it that they're willing to risk their own lives for it? Because they realize, if I don't take a stand for this, people are going to die in their sin and go to hell. Because they're not hearing it. Even if it's, even, I mean, think about the culture coming against Luther. Man, everybody hated his guts. Why? Because he's looking at the scriptures and he's taking a stand that flies directly in the face of the world that he's living in. That's what we're doing when we look at scripture and we're saying, I'm sorry, pastor Anna is not a pastor, right? She can't be. She's disqualified. She's not qualified just based on scripture. I'm not the bad guy. We're not the bad guys. We're telling you what God's word says. Go. let's look at uh, this, this idea of honoring parents. Because that's where Christ is, is 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 aiming this this attack against, or not against, but is, he's using the the idea of honoring parents in, in in bringing that against them. One thing biblically to to know is is here's from the Westminster Confession of Faith. So what does it mean to honor your parents? From the Westminster Confession, these are some some ideas. It means that. You give them all due respect in heart, word, and behavior. You pray and, and um, give them prayer and thanksgiving or to God for them. You imitate their virtues and graces. You exercise a willing obedience to their lawful commands and counsels. Submit to their corrections, fidelity to defense and maintenance of their persons and authority, bearing with them in their infirmities, covering them in love and here's here 's what 's important about this commandment in the Westminster and, and, and just just historically I mean the church, when you take this commandment and you say, "How can I apply this according to scripture it doesn 't just apply to your parents it applies to to any individual who exercises god ordained authority over us, so that would include our bosses that would include um, that would include the rulers, the government however however there 's always a caveat here because Um, This does not justify tyranny. You know, so in other words, the the best way to look at it is this. Everyone who is in authority is under authority. Everyone who is in authority is under authority. So this is not just some kind of unlimited power that your boss has over you. So that if your boss tells you to do something that's sinful, you just have to say, well, I got to obey. You know, the fifth commandment says I got to obey my my mother and father. And, you know, in a sense, this is a uh, this is also about God ordained authority over me and my boss or whoever is telling me to do something simple. I got to do it. Or the governor's the state is telling me, hey, we got to do something that, that goes against God's word, so we just do it. No, it's not that, right? Because if, if at any time those who are in authority Man, I did that last week. If at any time somebody comes and tells us to do something that God's word forbids, or tells us to abstain from something that God's word commands us to do, we are to disobey. Disobey. But it is to say, to the extent that they're not doing that, we are called to live under authority. Why? Because God is the one who arranges the authority. God is, the, the, the setup of the home is not like it's just arbitrary. It's not some kind of willy-nilly kind of thing. It's, God, it's something that God himself has ordained. As far as the father, a mother, children under the father and the mother that's that's the way that is that that God has called it to be same thing with our bosses there's a reason why like in Ephesians Paul's talking about hey if you got a if you got a bad boss remember you don't work primarily for your boss you work for the Lord and you work to please the Lord so even if you're mistreated or ill-treated at work you can still show them respect it doesn't mean again if they tell you to do something simple you do it but it's to say that there's this idea of honor and 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 um, And respect. I mean, same thing. Like in Clovis, you know, we have coward commissioners and a mayor who we're looking at. He's like, okay, we have some serious problems. Right Um, on the one hand. It doesn't mean that whatever he says or, 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 or wants to say that it just goes. And we just have to say, okay, well, that's it. I mean, so-and-so said it, so we have to do it. But on the other hand, of course, it also means that when we're engaging him and interacting with him that we need to remember to be respectful and doesn't mean we can't call him to account and things like that, but to be respectful, to be mindful of the fact that they are they are in the position that they are, they're placed there by God, and to interact with them in that manner. So it's the whole idea of... Um, There's hierarchies. There's structure. But think of this too. It's not just parents. In Leviticus 19.32, it says, Stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man. And you think about our culture, and you don't have any of that, right? Old people are despised in our culture. And that's a shame on us as a culture. Because biblically speaking, what you have is when everything's functioning correctly and firing off on the right cylinder... The elderly are respected. They're revered. People stand up when they come in the room. They're treated with dignity. That's biblical. That's what you have. Um, And then also, we don't have time to get into it, but 1 Timothy 5, even for us today. Now, we do have retirement homes, and we have... We have retirement plans and, and, and things, state, the state gives help and things like that. But as Christians, in First Timothy chapter 5, 3 through 8, it tells us that if you have, I'm going to read this actually. It'll be quick though. First Timothy 5, 3 through 8. This is what Paul says as far as our response to those. So especially for those of us who are older and we have parents who are older and we have parents who need help. who who don't have the means to provide for themselves. They're in a a tough situation. It says, verse 3, Honor widows who are widows indeed. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, there it is, grandchildren. If any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first, they meaning the children and grandchildren, must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents. For this is acceptable in the sight of God. That's the best part of that phrase because it means this isn't just like just to be nice. The church is not a social club. It's not a country club where we're just like, hey, let's just be nice to everybody. It's not that. The church is, is, is a, it's a pillar. It's a buttress of truth. It's the church militant where we're out to advance God's kingdom. But within that, there are certain, there are certain behaviors and attitudes and principles that come with that. One of those things is if you have a mother or a grandmother who needs help, we're called to help them. To the extent that we're able, help them, provide for them, take care of them. And I know there are tough situations sometimes where where it's 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 impossible to you need you need more hands. That's a real that's a real thing that that comes up. But in general, that's not the case, right? In general, the situation is we can help our mothers, our fathers, our grandparents. And so that's what you have. And that's in the context of the church, by the way, church responsibilities. And then it talks about the widow indeed is the one. So in other words, the church is called to help the widows who need, who need genuine help. And we do in this church. If someone needs genuine help financially, we, we, we need to provide that for them. But if those people have children or grandchildren, that's what Paul is saying. They need to be the ones to help them because in doing so, they are practicing piety. They are giving a return to the, to the, to the kindness and the help that their parents gave them. So that's what you have in the scriptures as far as this idea of honoring your parents. And then lastly, I want to ask you this. Think about this. Who is, the, who is the greatest example of what it is to be an obedient son that we have in scripture? It's Christ. Of course it is, right? Eric was just talking about that in catechism class where he, he came to do his father's will. That's everything. If you think about us, are we God's children? Absolutely. If you're in Christ, the Bible teaches that if you're not in Christ, you're not a child of God. If you're not in Christ, you're not a child of God. Look at 1 John 3.10. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. There's a dichotomy. There's a split here. You're either a child of God or a child of the devil. 1 John 3.10. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. What's he saying again? Hey, you might say that you're a child of God. You can say it all day long with your mouth. But if you are not practicing righteousness, you have no business actually calling yourself or having belief that you're actually a child of God. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. And that's the whole mindset of this, okay? If you say that you love God and that you honor God and that you obey God, but you hate your brother, do you really honor God, right? Right? That's the argument that Paul is using here. 1 John 5.3 says, In fact, this is love for God, to keep His commands. And His commands are not burdensome. So the idea is not, hey, if I keep His commands, I can be right with God. No, it's if I am right with God, if I am truly a child of God, I'm looking at what God's Word says, and I'm looking at it, and I'm saying, I delight, I, I desire to follow what I'm reading here. I desire to obey God here. I desire to do what he says to do. It's like, oh, you know, when, when a good illustration is, is whenever we're talking to an unbeliever and, and, you know, the Bible uses words like we just saw in Romans 1 that an unbeliever hates God. And they're like, what do you mean I hate God? I don't hate God. I just live as though he doesn't exist. I don't really hate him. But then you think about the analogy of of you know say say and I with these college students you say you know imagine you're at college and let's say your parents are paying for your college and and then you go home and and they're excited to see you and they want to know how the semester's going and all that but you just you walk right in and you kind of just you slam the door in their face you don't want to talk to them you just pretend like they don't exist and and they're trying to and 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 you just want nothing to do with them nothing at all But you love them right No it's not love. It's kind of like that. So when we're looking at who is the greatest demonstration of what loving God actually is, is Christ. Everything he does is always for the glory of God, including and up to when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and the capillaries in his skin are rupturing because he's so traumatized by what's going to take place on the next day that he's going to go to the cross and suffer the wrath of the Father whom he loves and the wrath of the Father whom loves, who, who loves him. And he's going to do so for his enemies, us. And he's his, his sweating blood, and he's asking God. I mean, you don't see this anywhere else in Scripture. He's actually asking God... Father, let this cup pass from me. Please don't. He never says that about anything else. You notice, right? Everything else is like, boom, I'm I'm doing this, I'm doing that. I'm suffering here, I'm suffering there. He's suffering here, the reproach of scribes and Pharisees. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he knows what's about to happen. And he says, Father, let this cup pass from me. He's read Isaiah 53 where it says, that it pleased, like Eric mentioned this this afternoon, it pleased the Father to crush him. That's what's going to happen to him. He says, Father, let this cup pass from me. But then how does he end it? How does he end it? Not my will be done, but your will be done. That's how he ends it. And then he goes to the cross. And so in Scripture, you have this idea of Christ being perfectly obedient to the Father in every word, every thought, every deed, going to the cross, dying in our place, being resurrected from the dead, And then by the grace of the Holy Spirit being poured out upon us, making us new creations, we ourselves become children of God. We ourselves can now say, Abba, Father, our Father who art in heaven. We can come to him as our Father, not some distant, transcendent God who's like a refrigerator who's cold and icy and doesn't know what's going on or who you are or anything like that. It's the opposite. You have such intimate access to the Father, to God, that you call God now Father and nobody else calls, the angels don't call God Father. That's because of what Christ has done for us. And so if we're looking at it and we're saying, ultimately, honoring our fathers, honoring our, those who are in authority above us, it comes down to this. It, st- it starts with this. It starts by, first of all, becoming a child of God and honoring God as He is. And then everything else comes from that. That's what you have in the scriptures. That is right there what the scribes and the Pharisees miss on all of this. They don't see God as their father. They don't realize the significance of obeying and honoring parents. They don't realize the significance of God's word. We as God's people should. And so when it comes down to it, it's like this. It's like this. You know what honoring God is? It's reading his word and believing it. Period. Doesn't matter what anyone else says. Doesn't matter what people come in and try to tell you is better than what God's word says. That's tradition, right? It's looking at God's word, it's reading it, and it's believing it. Because it's it's from him. God has spoken. He doesn't lie. He's my father. I believe it. That's what we have to do. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you that you have given us the scriptures. And Lord, forgive us, O oh Lord. Forgive us as your people for, for so often trying to twist it. Lord, we're told in your scriptures that our heart is deceitful above all else. And it's desperately wicked. It's a liar. And how many times, O oh God, have we ourselves tried to manipulate God's word. Or tried to, try to cover up or justify God our own sin by by abusing your word. And so often it's done unconsciously. We don't even know that we're doing it, Lord. And, And we confess that and we ask that you would forgive us and that you would help us as your people to not be ashamed of your word and to see what your word says, to believe your word. Lord, ultimately, we know that there will be a day when we all stand before you, regardless of what culture we come from, regardless of what our world says. And we're going to be held accountable for what we did with your word. For how we treated your word. How we looked at your word. Lord, forgive us for our unbelief. Forgive us for caving to these pressures of society. Lord, we thank you that Christ and his disciples were, were pillars. They were rocks in the face of ugly persecution. Lord, give us that same courage. Give us that same grace. Lord, bless us, help us to honor those who are in authority above us, to do it in a way that's respectful. Lord, we pray that you'd be with our children, that our children would, would come to know you, that they would turn to Christ, That they would that they would obey us, but that you would give us grace to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord in a way that pleases you, O Lord. Lord, you alone are worthy of praise, and so we give that to you today. In Jesus' name. Amen.